I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to a Christmas carol. First, let's take some time here to relax. Have a nice, big stretch where you are, giving your body permission to release any tension still lingering from the day. Breathe in through your nose and fill your belly with a nice, big breath. Now sigh it all out. You have nothing left to do today. Get a good night's sleep. Release any pressure on your mind to fall asleep just listen to the sound of my voice. In our last episode, Scrooge was looking on Bob Cratchit's Christmas Day with the ghost of Christmas present when his clerk raised a toast to Scrooge himself. His wife rebuked him for it and told of her dislike for the miserly old gentleman and a shadow fell upon the family. Once he was forgotten again, they celebrated ten times as joyously. Then Scrooge and the Spectre travelled far and wide, seeing Christmas celebrations from the desolate moors to a lighthouse and even out to sea on a ship. There was Christmas spirit in every soul that day. Eventually they were back in London, in the home of Fred, Scrooge's nephew. He was telling of his uncle's humbug opinion of Christmas and laughing with his friends. But he said he would never be cross with his uncle, only have pity for the lonely man on Christmas Day. They played games and ate and had a jolly time of it, and Scrooge enthusiastically threw himself into it all, not caring that they couldn't hear or see him. They watched a few more celebrations, and then Scrooge noticed the ghost was looking visibly older He explained his life lasts but one day, and before the bell struck twelve, he gave Scrooge one last warning, to beware of ignorance and want, and then the ghost was gone. 
Tonight, Scrooge encounters a final hooded phantom, the ghost of Christmases yet to come. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of A Christmas Carol. Stave Four, The Last of the Spirits. The Phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved seemed to scatter gloom and misery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. Am I in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come? said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment, as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud There were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while he, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. Ghost of the future, 
he exclaimed. I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, said Scrooge. Lead on, the night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on change amongst the merchants who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, observing that the hand was pointed to them. Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? inquired another. Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? asked a third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff box. I thought he'd never die. God knows, said the first with a yawn. What has he done with his money? asked a red-faced gentleman with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose that shook like the gills of a turkey. I haven't heard, said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker. Upon my life, I don't know anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the excrescence on his nose. But I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. Well, I'm the most disinterested among you, after all, said the first speaker. I never wear black gloves, and I never eat lunch, 
but I'll offer to go if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak wherever we met. Bye-bye. Speakers and listeners strolled away, mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked toward the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided on into a street. Its finger pointed to two persons meeting. Scrooge listened again, thinking that the explanation might lie here. He knew these men also perfectly. They were men of business, very wealthy and of great importance. He had made a point of always standing well in their esteem, in a business point of view, that is, strictly in a business point of view. How are you? said one. How are you? returned the other. Well, said the first. Old Scratch has got his own at last, eh? So I'm told, returned the second. Cold, isn't it? Seasonable for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no. Something else to think of. Good morning. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial, but feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and this ghost's providence was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them. But nothing, doubting that to whomever they applied, they had some latent moral for his own improvement, he resolved to treasure up every word he heard and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared. For he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self would give him the clue he missed, and would render the solution of these riddles easily. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark beside him 
stood the phantom with his outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fancied from the turn of the hand and its situation in reference to himself that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. It made him shudder and feel very cold. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of town where Scrooge had never penetrated before, although he recognized its situation and its bad repute. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly, alleys and archways like so many cesspools disgorged their offences of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets, and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed, beetling shop below a penthouse roof, where iron, old rags, bottles and greasy offal were bought. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few would like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in mountains of unseemly rags, masses of corrupted fat, and sepulchres of bones. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of bricks was a grey-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age, who had screened himself from the cold air without by a frowsy curtaining of miscellaneous tatters hung upon a line and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. She had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black, who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the charwoman alone to be the first, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. 
Look here, old Joe. Here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. Come into the parlour. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the other two ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it screeks. There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as its own hinges, I believe. And I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. (laughs) Well, we're all suitable to our calling. We're well matched. Come into the parlour. Come into the parlour. The parlour was the space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod, and having trimmed his smoky lamp, for it was night, with the stem of his pipe, put it in his mouth again. While he did this, the woman who had already spoken threw her bundle on the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, crossing her elbows on her knees and looking with bold defiance at the other two. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? said the woman. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. They always did. It's true, indeed, said the laundress. No man more so. Well, then, don't stand there staring as if you were as afraid, woman. Who's the wiser? Not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber and the man together. We should hope not. Very well, then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Or dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber, laughing. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, pursued the woman. Why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had someone to look after him when he was struck with death. Instead of lying, gasping out his last there alone by himself. That's the truest word that ever was spoken, said Mrs. Dilber. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment, replied the woman. And it should have been. You may depend upon it. If I could have laid my hands on anything else... Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. Not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We know pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this, and the man in faded black, mounting the breach first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, 
and a brooch of no great value were all. They were severally examined and appraised by old Joe, who chalked the sums he was disposed to give for each upon the wall and added them up to a total when he found there was nothing more to come. That's your account, said Joe, and I wouldn't give you another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Mrs. Dilber was next. Sheets and towels, little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. Always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine. It's the way I ruin myself, said old Joe. It's your account. If you asked me for another penny and made it an open question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. Now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knee for the greater convenience of opening it, and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this? said Joe. Bed curtains? returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward on her crossed arms. Bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took him down, wings and all with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, replied the woman. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand, and I can get anything in it by reaching it out for the sake of such a man as he was. Promise you, Joe, returned the woman coolly. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? asked Joe. Whose else is, do you think? replied the woman. Isn't likely to take a cold without him, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? said old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Don't you be afraid of that, returned the woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Ah, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find an hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had. And a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? Asked old Joe. Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure, replied the woman with a laugh. Somebody was a fool enough to do it. I took it off again. Calico ain't good enough for such a purpose. It isn't good enough for anything else. Quite as becoming on the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that. Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror as they sat, grouped about their spoil, 
in the scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp. He viewed them with a detestation and disgust which could hardly have been greater, though they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. Ha! laughed the same woman when old Joe, producing a flannel bag with money in it, told out their several gains upon the ground. That's the end of it, you see. He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. Spirit, said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see. I see the case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and he had now almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath the ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced round it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced toward the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted the slightest rising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it, but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the spectre at his side. Oh, cold, Cold, rigid, dreadful death. Set up thine altar here, and dress it with such terrors as thou hast at thy command, for this is thy dominion. But of the loved, revered, and honoured head, thou canst not turn one hair to thy dread purposes, or make one feature odious. It is not that the hand is heavy and will fall down when released. It is not that the heart and pulse are still, but that the hand was open, generous and true. The heart brave, warm and tender, and the pulse a man's. Strike, shadow, strike, and see his good 
seeds springing from the wound to sow the world with life immortal. No voice pronounced these words in Scrooge's ears, and yet he heard them when he looked upon the bed. He thought, if this man could be raised up now, what would be his foremost thoughts? Avarice? Hard dealing? Griping cares? They have brought him to a rich end, truly. He lay in the dark, empty house, with not a man, a woman, or a child to say that he was kind to me in this or that, and for the memory of one kind word, I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was the sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone what they wanted in the room of death, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not care to think. Spirit, he said, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson, trust me. Let us go. Still, the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, Scrooge returned, and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. Is there any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death? said Scrooge, quite agonized. Show that person to me, spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight, where a mother and her children were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, as she walked up and down the room, started at every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, tried but in vain to work with her needle, could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner that had been hoarded for him by the fire, and when she asked him faintly what news, which was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. Is it good? She said. Or bad? To help him. Bad, he answered. 
We are quite ruined. No, there is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, she said, amazed. But there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. It's past relenting, said her husband. He is dead. She was a mild and patient creature if her face spoke truth. She was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so with clasped hands. She prayed forgiveness the next moment and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart. What the half-drunk woman whom I told you of last night said to me when I tried to see him on obtain a week's delay, what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know. But before that time, we shall be ready with the money. And even though we were not... It would be a bad fortune indeed to find so merciless a creditor in his successor. We may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. Yes, soften it as they would, their hearts were lighter. The children's faces, hushed and clustered round to hear what they so little understood, were brighter it was a happier house for this man's death. The only emotion that the ghost could show him caused by the event was one of pleasure. <laughs>